All right, church, we come now in our worship of the living God together to the preaching of his word. If you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 19. Deuteronomy chapter 19. Let's take a few minutes and let's call upon the name of the Lord again together as the people of God. Let's ask for God's help and nearness this morning. Let's pray. Father, we come again, Lord, and we come to you today. God, thank you for corporate worship. God, thank you for the assembly of the saints. And God, we pray that by your spirit, you would remind us, deepen our souls, God, that we were made for you. We were made for this. We were made to worship, God. And we come to you with that heart this morning as your church, Lord. We come to worship you. You are the gracious Savior of our ruined life, Lord. And we worship you, God. You are good. You are gracious. You are merciful. And Lord, we pray that you would nourish our souls today. God, we pray that you would teach us your word. That you would reveal yourself to us by your word. And Lord, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would exalt the Lord Jesus Christ in every soul this morning. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to cover this morning, we're going to cover chapter 19 of Deuteronomy. We're going to continue in our study of this book. And the first thing I want to ask you to do this morning is stand and we're going to read this chapter together Uh, We're going to read the Word of God together this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. Thus says the Lord, When the Lord your God cuts off the nations whose land the Lord your God is giving you, and you dispossess them and dwell in their cities and in their houses, you shall set apart three cities... For yourselves in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess, you shall measure the distances and divide into three parts the area of the land that the Lord your God gives you as a possession, so that any manslayer can flee to them. This is the provision for the manslayer, who by fleeing there may save his life. If anyone kills his neighbor unintentionally without having hated him in the past, as when someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood and his hand swings the axe to cut down a tree and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies, he may flee to one of these cities and live. Lest the avenger of blood in hot pursuit of the manslayer and overtake him because the way is long and strike him fatally though the man did not deserve to die since he had not hated his neighbor in the past. Therefore I command you, you shall set apart three cities and if the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he swore to your fathers and gives you all the land that he promised to give your fathers provided you are careful careful to keep all this commandment which I have commanded you today by loving the Lord your God, and by walking ever in his ways. Then you shall add three other cities to these three, lest innocent blood be shed in your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, so that the guilt of bloodshed be upon you. But if anyone hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him and attacks him and strikes him fatally so that he dies... And he flees into one of these cities, then the elders of his city shall send and take him from there, hand him over to the avenger of blood, so that he may die. Your eyes shall not pity him, but you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel, so that it may be well with you. Verse 14, you shall not move your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set in the inheritance that you hold in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. 
A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priest and the judges who were in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he meant to do to his brother, and so you shall purge the evil from your midst." And the rest shall hear and fear and never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, and foot for foot. This is God's word to Grace Community Church this morning. You may be seated. As we enter into chapter 19 of Deuteronomy, we are entering into a general section of this book that deals with various laws, and this general section runs from chapter 19, which we just read, all the way to chapter 25, and so this type of thing will be what we're studying together over the next several weeks as a church. If you'll notice in chapter 19, the unifying theme is judicial process. What Moses is laying down here is, is, is just laws in Israel. This is how Israel is to uphold justice in the land. Now, I'll make a quick comment before we walk through these three laws that Moses gives us in this chapter And one of the things that we learn about the law of God in the Old Testament is that it should be a delight to the people of God. In fact, you may remember many times, David especially in the Psalms, says things like, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Uh, Or the righteous man who delights in the law of God and meditates in that law day and night. As the people of God, we should love the law of God and all the intricacies of the law of God. This is God's righteous law. This is God's word from heaven. And so studying the law of God should be a delight to the people of God. In fact... So uh, set apart are these laws. One of the things Moses says about Israel is that their neighbors are supposed to be able to look into their laws and conclude something like this. What nation has laws so righteous as Israel has? Okay, These are good laws, wise laws, just laws. And yet, especially as In this new covenant age, as the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ, we are never meant, and really the law was never meant, to be studied in a Christless way, in a way that ignores the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus indicted the Pharisees for this. And John chapter 5 is a good place to see this. He indicts them for studying the scriptures... And yet refusing to come to the one that the scriptures testified about. And so Jesus himself taught us that the law of Moses is about him. It's about Christ. And so the law has this prophetic function. It's righteous in and of itself. The commands are righteous. They're wise and they're good. But they also point us through types, through prophecies, through promises. They point us the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the things you're going to see this morning is that these Jewish customs, they point us to our Savior. They point us to Jesus. And so I'm going to attempt to explain these laws, okay? And then I'm going to seek to exalt the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ that we see in these laws in chapter 19. Let's start beginning in verse 1. Moses lays out this provision, this commandment 
for these cities of refuge. The cities of refuge. See that in verse 2. He says three cities are to be set apart. Okay? They're to be dedicated for a specific purpose in Israel. Verse 3, Moses says, equal distances across the land set apart these three cities. These equal distances are so that all the Israelites or every Israelite can have easy access to this gracious provision of God. Easy access to these cities of refuge. Why were they set apart? Look at verse 3. So that any manslayer can flee to them. Set apart the cities of refuge so that any manslayer can flee to them. Verse 4, this was the gracious provision of God to spare the life of a manslayer. Okay? Now, parents, if you want an interesting conversation at the dinner table, okay, you would have asked your children this week, what is a manslayer? Okay? And, you know, uh, all across the board, you know, um, you might be thinking that this morning. Man, what is a manslayer? Well, Moses answers this. Look at verse 4. A manslayer is anyone who kills another person without intention or without malice. Okay? Without intention or without malice. Okay, this is... Uh, God's provision for accidental death in Israel. In other words, okay, the law of God acknowledges different kinds of death and different types of killing. Death by design, planned, calculated, intentional, is different than death by accident. They're not the same. Okay? They're not the same in the eyes of God. They're not the same uh, under the law of God. And our modern laws are right to distinguish lots of different types and degrees of homicide. Okay? Moses gives an example of this. Accidental death. This manslaying in verse 5. He gives this example of two men going into the woods to cut trees down with axes. Okay? And, and some accident happens as they're chopping down trees. The head of the axe flies off as it's being swung to chop down the tree. And it strikes the other man and kills him. This accidental death. Okay? This sort of thing still happens in our world. Okay? Happens more often than we would like it to happen. Than we would want it to happen. Despite all our modern warning labels on everything we have, despite all the disclaimers, the legal disclaimers, and, and, and the insurance, and all the ways we try to prevent accidents, they still happen in this fallen world. And a basic Old Testament assumption of justice is that the person who commits this accident, this manslayer, they should not be punished as though they were a murderer. That's a basic assumption in the Old Testament. But there was a danger for the manslayer. Okay? The danger is mentioned in verse 4. The danger is mentioned in verse 4 as the avenger, sorry, verse 5, as the avenger of blood. The danger for the manslayer was even though he didn't intentionally kill another human being, this avenger of blood would hunt him down and cut him down. Okay, Verse 6, lest the avenger of blood pursue the manslayer and overtake him and strike him fatally, though the man did not deserve to die. Now, with that word, the avenger of blood, Moses speaks about an ancient Near Eastern custom. Okay, this is the custom in the world that Israel lives in at this point in time. And this custom was the avenger of blood. It literally translates as the redeemer of blood. Okay, and to really get this concept in the law of God, you have to understand that murder was understood not simply as something that should be punished... Murder was understood as something that must be punished. There was blood guilt that had to be removed from the land. Okay? 
The shedding of blood produced a guilt that had to be dealt with, that had to be expiated, that had to be atoned for and covered. And according to Old Testament law, the only way to deal with cold-blooded murder is through the shedding of, a, of the murderer's blood. That's the only way to deal with it. Okay? This was codified in the Word of God as old as the Mosaic Covenant uh, in Genesis chapter 9. We read these words, Genesis 9 verse 6, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Numbers 35 verse 31, You shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer. He shall be put to death. You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land And no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it except by the blood of the one who shed it. There was a necessary payment in the the circumstance of cold-blooded murder. There was a necessary just payment for that sin, the death of the murderer. And so the avenger of blood was the member of the victim's family who would seek to avenge that death, who would seek to uh, take away that blood guilt from Israel and atone for that murder. That was the avenger of blood. And yet, this is not like the Wild West uh, personal vengeance of, man, you kill my brother, I kill you, you know, And we see that in this passage, that this passage tells us that the elders of the city are involved. This is not just a merely personal or family feud type thing. This is not Hatfields and McCoys in the Bible, okay? The elders of the city are involved, which means that this avenger of blood is supposed to act under judicial authority. There's supposed to be a judicial process involved, investigating, judging This circumstance, the avenger of blood was only to act in tandem with the elders and the judges. And if the avenger of blood was just, he would bring the accused to trial before the judges and then execute that murderer only after he was convicted of his crime. Again, you see this in Numbers 35. It expands these laws in greater detail. Numbers 35, verse 12. The city shall be for you a refuge from the avenger, that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation for judgment. That was the provision. And so the danger in all of this was that that avenger of blood would act hastily in anger, And he would cut down an innocent man and treat a manslayer as though he were a murderer. And so Moses brings in these cities of refuge. And these cities of refuge, they bring due process, due judicial process into this circumstance. They slow things down. They require a trial for the accused. Verse 10 shows us that they... That these cities, this law, protected Israel from shedding innocent blood. Okay, Just like murder is the shedding of innocent blood, executing a manslayer who didn't deserve to die would also be the shedding of innocent blood in Israel. And so the idea here is this. As soon as the accused manslayer entered into one of these cities to seek refuge, he was automatically safe. In other words, the very moment that he stepped across the threshold of that city, the avenger of blood legally, judicially had to step down. He had no jurisdiction in that city. And so the entrance into that city bought some time and and due process so that the accused could be tried before the judge, the judges. And if he was innocent, he would live 
in this city of refuge, Moses says, until the death of the high priest. You see that in Numbers 35. This would be a place of safety for him until the death of the high priest. Now, if you look at verse 11, Moses anticipates something. Okay, Sinners love to corrupt and twist and play games with God's law. And so Moses anticipates this circumstance that a murderer would commit cold-blooded murder and they would hear about these cities of refuge and think, man, that's a pretty good deal. I'll just cut somebody down in cold blood and I'll run to the city of refuge and boom, safe, solve that problem. Okay, He anticipates the abuse of this gracious provision of God. That a murderer would seek quarter in the city of refuge. But in verse 11, we find that no quarter is to be given the murderer in the city of refuge. They must be turned over to the avenger of blood after the trial and executed by the avenger if they're found guilty. So this is a gracious provision of God for the innocent accused in Israel. But this is not to be twisted into a license to get away with murder in Israel. Now, Moses mentions setting apart three cities. He also mentions if the territory is expanded, do three more. And we find that's exactly what they did. In Joshua 20, they allot six cities as cities of refuge in Israel as they uh, take over the land, as they complete the conquest of Canaan. These cities are Kadesh, Shechem, Hebron, Bezer, Ramoth, and Golan. These were cities where a manslayer could take refuge in Israel. Now something really interesting happens in the book of Hosea. One of the functions that the Old Testament prophets had is they indicted the people of God as lawbreakers. Moses gave gave the law and the prophets are like the prosecuting attorneys prosecuting Israel on the terms of the Mosaic Covenant. So one of the things that Hosea indicts Israel for is for breaking these laws about the cities of refuge. Listen to Hosea chapter 6. Verses 8 and 9, Gilead is a city of evildoers, tracked with blood. As robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together and they murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. So Hosea names two cities of refuge and he describes them as cities of bloodshed instead of cities of safety. Cities of corruption instead of cities of righteousness. And so, as we see the history of Israel play out, like so many other laws of Moses, Israel does not live out these just commandments of God. Okay, The law of God is corrupted in the land. This is why God takes Israel out of the land. This is why Israel is living in exile by the time Jesus Christ uh, appears in the fullness of of time. So we have the cities of refuge, number one. Number two, Moses deals with another category of the law in verse 14, the moving of a neighbor's landmark. Okay? Now this one we have some trouble with. You know, like it just doesn't sound like a big deal to take somebody's fence post and move it over five feet, seven feet, to get you a little, you know, bit more grass to cut, you know. It's like, man, I mean, that's wrong. Don't get me wrong, but what's the big deal here? But God's law treats this as a severe sin. This is a form of stealing in the law of God, moving a neighbor's landmark. It's mentioned several times in the Old Testament. I'll mention four. Deuteronomy 27, verse 17. Cursed be anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark. Okay, that's a big deal. To be cursed by God is a severe sin, is the, is the punishment for severe sin. Hosea 5, Hosea again. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. 
Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. They're stealers. They're thieves. Now, as you study this particular commandment and the sin that's being forbidden here, a lot of times where this is referred to in the Old Testament, it's mentioned side by side with the oppression of the poor. And so to dial down really specific to what is being forbidden in this commandment is this power move, this legal power move that the rich enforce upon the poor. They take their land. okay, And when they take their land, they take their livelihood. This is one of the ways that the poor were oppressed in Israel. Job 24, two examples of this. Some move landmarks. They seize flocks and pasture them they drive away the donkey of the fatherless they take away the widow's axe for a pledge they thrust the poor off the road the poor of the earth hide themselves referring to the wicked men who oppress the poor proverbs 23 verse 10 do not move an ancient landmark or enter the fields of the fatherless For their Redeemer is strong, and He will plead their case against you. So again, this is a form of protection for the poor. So if you think about it, the first commandment we dealt with in chapter 19 is protecting life in Israel. And the second commandment we're dealing with in chapter 19 is protecting livelihood in Israel. Especially the livelihood of Israel the poor number three the last matter Moses deals with is the issue of witnesses witnesses and really there's two doctrines taught here okay two things that Moses says number one crimes are to be established by multiple witnesses look at verse 16 on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be established. And so this is a foundation stone of biblical justice that multiple witnesses need to corroborate a crime. There needs to be, something needs to be established, not somebody just kind of doing their own thing and one person just pronounces somebody guilty and all of a sudden they're guilty, okay? There needs to be due process. The the facts need to be established. Witnesses need to be established. Now, this is an abiding principle. Okay? Cities of refuge, not abiding. We don't don't do cities of refuge. Okay? And and that's that was a that was a Jewish custom. Multiple witnesses establishing a crime is an abiding commandment on the, on the people of God. And really not just the people of God. It's a foundation stone for biblical justice for any culture, anywhere in the world. Okay? This is repeated in 1 Timothy 5 on the evidence of two or three witnesses. That's a New Testament command. That's not just an Old Testament command. So this is one doctrine that Moses is teaching in this last section is multiple witnesses to establish a crime. And the second doctrine that he's teaching about these witnesses is that if you testify falsely and you accuse anyone of a crime, the law of God requires you to be punished for that lie. Okay? It's a form of lying. It's attacking someone's character And Moses says that if someone is shown to be a false witness, you're to do to them what they intended to do to their brother. And so witnessing is a big deal, right? Just like judges taking bribes corrupt justice, false witnesses corrupt justice. It's a foundation stone of biblical justice. Truthful witnesses establishing Witnesses, And so Moses bans all form of lying from the courtroom in Israel. Justice and only justice should be done in this nation. Now I want to mention just a couple of things about this principle of multiple witnesses. This is often misunderstood, often misapplied. Two things it cannot mean, does not mean. 
Okay? It does not mean that everyone who committed a crime automatically got away with that crime if there was only one eyewitness. Doesn't mean that. Can't mean that. Okay? Doesn't mean if you commit murder in Israel and only one person saw you do it, you're automatically get away with it. Doesn't mean that. Can't mean that. Number two, neither does it mean if you are the eyewitness, the single eyewitness who witnessed such a crime, that you automatically let it go because there's nobody else to corroborate that crime. Doesn't mean that, can't mean that. Can't mean that if you saw someone kill somebody else that you automatically just say, whoop, let that go because nobody else saw it but me. Okay. In this instance of a single witness... Moses lays out a process in verse 17 and 18. That single witness and the accused were to appear before the Lord. And by before the Lord, he means before the judges who were in office in those days, verse 17. And those judges are to inquire diligently, Moses says, into this matter. So you got the, the single witness, you got the accused... And you got the judges in office, and they're inquiring diligently into this matter, verse 18. And in the midst of that diligent inquiry, several outcomes. I want to mention two. One outcome could be that as they inquired diligently into this matter, additional witnesses are discovered that cor corroborate what the witness is saying. Okay? That's one outcome. The diligent inquiry can produce additional witnesses. That's one outcome. Second outcome could be, or as they inquire diligently into the matter, the judges themselves could become witness to the guilt or the innocence of the accused. As the facts of the matter are established, they themselves could become witnesses. And all of a sudden now you don't have a single witness, you have multiple witnesses. And these same principles play out in our modern judicial system of judge and jury. Okay? This is part of uh, justice, is due process and establishing facts, establishing witnesses. And Moses says that after that diligent inquiry in verse 18, if what is established is not the guilt of the accused, but the maliciousness of the witness, Moses calls for punishment for bearing false witness in Israel. Even the death penalty, even life for life, if that's what they sought to inflict unjustly upon their brother. How much lying do you think we would get out of the courtroom with some kind of principle like that? That witnessing is serious business, okay? Saying something false about another person is serious business. That's not, you know, a, a, a little form of uh, cultural gossip. That's a lie in the presence of God. So these laws in chapter 19, they point us to justice. Justice in matters of life, justice in matters of livelihood, justice in matters of truthfulness. But as we stated at the beginning, these laws also have a prophetic function that points us to Christ. This would have been in the Bible that Jesus says testifies about him. These, this is Moses. These are the writings of Moses. And so that's what we're going to meditate on together as we close our time this morning, especially this Jewish ceremony of the cities of refuge. That ceremony, by ceremony I mean part of the ceremonial law that we don't keep, that Jewish custom prophesies to us. It is a type of the work of Jesus Christ. You could say it like this, the cities of refuge point us to the true and better refuge of Jesus Christ. And so I want us to meditate on that glorious reality. We are the people of God and Christ Jesus is our refuge. Now, I want to remind all of us, all of us, 
We are in a desperate circumstance that we need to flee out of. There's similarities here. There's similarities here between the manslayer and every human being. And the, and, and the way the Bible describes the desperate circumstances that we're in, that we need to get out of as fast as possible, are the words sin and wrath. All of us have sinned. All of us have committed crimes against God. All of us deserve God's wrath, and we need to flee from that wrath. There's something urgent that needs to happen in the life of every human being. And the same Bible that puts all of us in this, this circumstance of sin and wrath also puts Jesus Christ forward as the only refuge that we can run to to flee this desperate Situation. And so to use the imagery of this passage as an analogy, it is as though every one of us have murdered God's commandment. We have all sinned. We have hated God's authority. We have spurned God's authority. We are guilty. And it is though the law of God as the avenger of blood is hotly pursuing us, seeking justice, seeking to inflict wrath, just wrath upon us for what we have done, how we have rebelled against God, our King. Again, this is the desperate situation of every human being. And I want to speak plainly to you this morning about this. I want to speak earnestly to you today about this. If you are not delivered... From that condition, the Bible says that you will suffer death, hell, and eternal wrath. You are in danger. You are in a situation. you got to get out of this. you got to run from this. There needs to be a response. You are a sinner. You are under the wrath of God. And Jesus Christ is your only refuge. And once you see that, about yourself, that you're in that kind of danger, serious danger, that you're being hotly pursued by the justice of God, if you really see that about yourself, and I don't just mean church knowledge, like, yeah, I know that's true, but that you really agree that it is, that that is true, that is just, I am a sinner, God, God, God is going to judge me, then the sweetest news that could ever come into your ears is the proclamation that, that there's a refuge for you. That Jesus Christ can be your refuge. You can be saved from all of this. And this is the gospel of Jesus. We have a way to flee from the wrath of God. Thanks be to God, our refuge is Jesus Christ, our Lord. You can have an eternal place of safety. Instead of an eternal place of wrath through Christ Jesus, the refuge. Now, one of the things I want to mention here, and typology works this way in the Bible, as we move from type, city of refuge, to substance, Christ our refuge, we always move from good to better. It's always an increase. Okay? It's, it's always, that was good, that was a gracious provision of God for Israel, but Jesus is better. And I want to mention several ways that we see this move from good to better as we apply this text to the gospel. Number one, Israel's refuge was good news for the innocent. Remember that? I mean, if you committed, you know, a crime, you couldn't just run, you couldn't just run in that city and say, ha, I'm in the city. Elders of that city say, ha, ha, you're not. You're in the hands of the avengers of blood now because you're guilty. Cities of refuge was good news for the innocent. But friends, I want us to understand this. And I want us to see how unworthy we truly are of a glorious gospel of grace Christ as our refuge is good news for the guilty. For the guilty. You run into this refuge 
with blood on your hands. You run into this refuge with a mountain of sin debt and you can take shelter here and safety here. It's good news for the guilty, not just good news for the innocent. It is here that Christ alone can forgive us of all of our sins, that we can receive mercy and find a place of safety in the presence of God. Think about this. Israel's cities, they delivered you from physical death, but Christ, our refuge, delivers us from eternal death and gives us eternal life. And so I want to call us today every single one of us to run to Jesus as our refuge. If you haven't been saved, run to him as your refuge for salvation. If you have been saved, renew that. Remind yourself today in the presence of God, this is my only hope. This is my only safe place. When the stormy blast breaks loose on the final day, I am in Christ Jesus. This is wonderful grace from God. I saw an illustration this week, and I thought immediately, that right there is refuge. You know, he didn't know it because he can't even talk yet. Uh, but I, I saw it and I said, yep, that was refuge right there. That's what he just did. He took refuge. And you'll notice this if you see a shy young child in public. Okay, and I mean, you know, uh, a shy and they, uh, you know, some friendly stranger comes to try to talk to him. And all of a sudden, you know, uh, the, the little, you know, lights start flashing in their brain, stranger danger. And they're scared and they don't want anything to do, you know, with this person. And a young child will take their head and they'll bury it into the chest of their mother or their father. And it's like in that moment, if you could climb inside their their little brains, they're thinking, I don't even want to look at that danger. I'm not even going to look at that danger. I'm going to take safety right here. This is where I'm comfortable. This is where I'm going to be protected. That's what they're doing. They're taking refuge. They're shielding themselves in that moment. They're running to mom or dad for safety, for comfort, for protection. And friends, in a similar way, by faith, I want to call us to cling to Jesus like that. I'm not even going to look at the danger. I'm, I'm going to fix my eyes on my Savior. I'm going to cling to Him and to Him alone. If you're unsaved here this morning, I hope you know that you are welcome at this church. I mean, I hope it goes without saying, and we shouldn't leave it without saying, that you're welcome here. This is a place where sinners, unsaved sinners can come and hear the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And you can come today, you can come next week, you can come next year and a year after that. You're welcome here. But I got several things I want you specifically to consider this morning. I want you to consider this. Number one. I want you to consider that Israel's cities of refuge, they weren't magic, okay? They didn't provide safety because they had a stronger military than all the other cities. They had some kind of mega bombs or mega weapons that if the Avenger comes, you know, he wipe them off the map. It wasn't safety because the walls of the city were double high or double thick. It was safe because God said it was safe. In other words, the cities of refuge were God's appointed means of salvation. Here you were safe and nowhere else. It was God's word that made these cities a refuge. The moment, I mean that's an awesome thought, if you're the manslayer, chopping wood and accidentally kills somebody, and all of a sudden, somebody's hotly pursuing you. And as soon as you enter in, he stands down. You're running for your life. And he stands down. You have to learn to go to the God-appointed place for salvation. You have to learn that. Jesus said there's no other way to the Father except through him. You have to learn this is the only way to be saved. This is the God-appointed means for salvation. One of the things that the, this was mentioned in fellowship group this week. One of the things that the Father said 
about the son at the transfiguration, remember that? Is he said, listen to him. Listen to him. This is God's appointed means of safety. It's Jesus Christ and nowhere else. You've got to learn to go there. Consider also, the manslayer was not saved by mere knowledge. Wasn't saved, oh yeah, I've heard about a city of refuge somewhere. There's like six of them around somewhere. He wasn't saved by that knowledge. Neither was the manslayer saved by starting on a journey, taking a few steps towards the city of refuge. Avenger catches him on the way, cuts him down. He's dead. He was only safe as he entered into that city, as he crossed the threshold of that city. And neither are you saved Young, old, child, everybody in the room, neither are you saved by merely knowing about the gospel, being able to repeat the gospel. Neither are you saved by taking a couple of steps towards Jesus, like I'm going to clean up my life a little bit and start doing a a few good things. You know, uh, Jesus inspires me. Those things don't save you. You're only saved by clinging to Christ, having Christ as your refuge by entering that city that is Jesus Christ. Now the Israelites did this by running physically fast. We do this by faith. We run to Christ by faith. Last thing I want you to consider is this. Unsaved friends, old and young, If a manslayer in Israel ran urgently to get to that city of refuge, ran swiftly with the avenger of blood in hot pursuit, he's literally running for his life not to be cut down, how much more urgently should you run to Christ Jesus for the salvation of your soul? I want to ask you this morning, uh, young person, where is your soberness? Where is that in your life? Where it's not just a bunch of goofing off for you, but you're really serious about this last day of standing in the presence of God and, 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 and being safe from the stormy blast of wrath. Where is your soberness about this? Does it really affect you? Like, where is it? Old person, maybe you've heard the gospel for three, four decades in this world. And I want to ask you today, where's your urgency? Where is your urgency? Are you running for your life to be saved from the wrath of God? It's not business as usual. This is life or death. Eternity is at stake. Where's your urgency? And so I want to exhort you this morning, do not make it your aim. Do not. Be counted among those who are laughing their way through life. Laugh at having a good old time. Not realizing that the rope of God's wrath is tightening around their neck. Little by little by little. You should consider your latter end. You should consider the final day. And you should live in light of your latter end. You should live in light of the final day, and you should run to Christ for refuge like a little child taking comfort in their parents' chest. None but Jesus can save you. There's nowhere else to run. There's nowhere else to turn. But the good news is this. If Jesus becomes your refuge... The law of God, the just, righteous, and holy law of God, it can never strike you down. Ever. Do you know why? Because it struck Jesus down instead of us. Jesus has already been struck down by the law of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Maybe you've been camping at some point in your life or been sitting around a bonfire 
And I've been helped with, you know, just this uh, illustration in my life. If you are to burn pieces of wood until the fire goes out and there's nothing left and you try to relight that fire, there's nothing left to burn. It's all ashes. The justice of God has been satisfied for the believer. There is no more punishment. There is no more condemnation. Why? Because Jesus Christ took every single ounce of it. He's already been struck down in our place. Justice has already been fully satisfied. And so, brothers and sisters, this is to the church of Jesus Christ. Consider this. As safe as the manslayer was in the city of refuge, as soon as he went in, are we not safer in our Lord Jesus Christ? The one whose blood covered all of our sins. The one who fully paid for all of God's wrath. Are we not safer than they? And friends, if the mere entrance into Israel's city stopped the avenger of blood dead in his tracks, how much more does the shed blood of Jesus and the high priestly ministry of one who sits at the right hand of God stop condemnation in its tracks for the believer? How much condemnation is left for those who are in Christ? Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's none left. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Christian, I want to remind us this morning, we, we can take joy in this. We can enjoy this in the presence of God. Our souls can be nourished with this glorious truth this morning. Everything that a refuge is, Jesus Christ is that and more to you. He is your safety. He is your comfort. He is your protection. He is your provision. Christ is all to us. Think of the glorious thought. The resurrected Lord Jesus Christ is our refuge. He's a saving refuge for his people. We are the asylum seekers that have entered Jesus Christ as our eternal city. And that's glorious grace from God. So church, let's resolve to rest in Christ alone. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for grace, Lord. Matchless, glorious grace that you have revealed to us through the person and through the work of Christ. And Lord, we pray that Christ would be exalted in this church. Lord, we pray that Christ would be exalted in our hearts and in our lives. Jesus, you are all to us, and we pray that you would magnify your glorious sufficiency. In Jesus' name we pray.